He makes it plain that the righteousness of God is given to us through faith and that we enter heaven pleading only the merits of Christ. The reason for this system of grace is that those who glory should glory in the Lord and that no person should ever have occasion to boast over another. The redemption was purchased at an infinite cost to God himself and therefore it may be dispensed as he pleases in a purely gracious manner. As the poet has said, none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through, ere he found his sheep that were lost. 4. Scripture Teaching Let us now notice some of those scriptures which teach that our sins were imputed to Christ, and then notice some which teach that his righteousness is imputed to us. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and Jehovah hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 By the knowledge of himself shall my righteous servant justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. He bear the sin of many. Isaiah 53, verse 11 and 12 Him who knew no sin he made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 here both truths are plainly stated. Our sins are set to his account and his righteousness to ours. There is no other conceivable sense in which he could be made sin or we made the righteousness of God. It was Christ who his own self bare our sins in his body upon the tree that we, having died unto sins, might live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Here again, both truths are shown together. Because Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18. Those and many other such verses prove the doctrine of his substitution in our stead as plainly as language can put it. If they do not prove that the death of Christ was a true and proper sacrifice for sin in our stead, human language cannot express it. That his righteousness is imputed to us is taught in language equally plain. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God hath been manifested, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, unto all them that believe being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to show his righteousness because of the passing over of the sins done aforetime in the forbearance of God, for the showing, I say, of his righteousness at this present season, that he might himself be just and the justifier of him that hath faith in Jesus. Where then is glorifying? It is excluded. By what manner of law? Of works? 
nay, but by the law of faith. We reckon, therefore, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 3, verses 20 through 28. So then, as through one trespass the judgment came unto all men to condemnation, even so, through one act of righteousness, the free gift came unto all men to justification of life. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one shall the many be made righteous. Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Paul's testimony in regard to himself was, I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, even that which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. Now is it not strange that anyone who pretends to be guided by the Bible could, in the face of all this plain and unequivocal language, uphold salvation by works in any degree whatever? Paul wrote to the Romans, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Chapter 6, verse 14. That is, God had taken them out from under a system of law, and had placed them under a system of grace. And as their sovereign, it was not his purpose to let them again fall under the dominion of sin. In fact, if they were to fall, it could only be because God had taken them out from under grace and again placed them under law, so that their own works determined their destiny. In the very nature of the case, as long as the person is under grace, he is entirely free from any claim that the law may have on him through sin. For one to be saved through grace means that God is no longer treating him as he deserves, but that he has sovereignly set the law aside and that he saves him in spite of his ill desert, cleansing him from his sin, of course, before he is fit to enter the divine presence. Paul goes to great pains to make it clear that the grace of God is not earned by us, is not secured by us in any way, but is just given to us. If it be earned, it ceases by that very fact to be grace. Romans 11.6 5. Further Remarks In the present state of the race, all men stand before God, not as citizens of a state, all of whom must be treated alike and given the same chance for salvation, but rather as guilty and condemned criminals before a righteous judge. None have any claim to salvation. The marvel is, not that God doesn't save all, but that when all are guilty, he pardons so many. And the answer to the question, why does he not save all, is to be found not in the Arminian denial of the omnipotence of his grace, but in the fact that, as Dr. Warfield says, God in his love saves as many of the guilty race of men as he can get the consent of his whole nature to save. For reasons known to himself, he sees that it is not best to pardon all, but that some should be permitted to have their own way and be left to eternal punishment in order that it may be shown what an awful thing is sin and rebellion against God. 
Time and again the scriptures repeat the assertion that salvation is of grace as if anticipating the difficulty which men would have in coming to the conclusion that they could not earn salvation by their own works. Thus also they destroy the widespread notion that God owes salvation to any. By grace have ye been saved through faith, in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, that no man should glory. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 but if it is of grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. Romans 11, verse 6. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Romans 3, verse 20. Now to him that worketh, the reward is not reckoned as of grace, but as of debt. Romans 4, verse 4. Who maketh thee to differ? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. By the grace of God I am what I am. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. Romans 11, verse 35. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6:23. Grace and works are mutually exclusive, and as well might we try to bring two poles together as to effect a correlation of grace and works and salvation. As well might we talk of a purchased gift as to talk of a conditional grace, for when grace ceases to be absolute, it ceases to be grace. Therefore, when the scriptures say that salvation is of grace, we are to understand that it is through its whole process the work of God, and that any two meritorious works done by men are the result of the change which has already been wrought. Arminianism destroys this purely gracious character of salvation and substitutes a system of grace plus works. No matter how small a part these works may play, they are necessary and are the basis of the distinction between the saved and the lost, and would then afford occasion for the saved to boast over the lost since each had equal opportunity. But Paul says that all boasting is excluded and that he who glories should glory in the Lord. Romans 3 verse 27 and 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31. But if saved by grace, the redeemed remembers the mire from which he was lifted and his attitude toward the lost is one of sympathy and pity. He knows that but for the grace of God he too would have been in the same state as those who perish and his song is Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Chapter 24, page 308 Personal Assurance that One is Among the Elect 1. Basis for Assurance 2. Scriptural Teaching 3. Conclusion 1. Basis for Assurance All true Christians may and should know that they are among those who have been predestinated to eternal life. Since faith in Christ, which is a gift from God, is the means of salvation, and since this is not given to any but the elect only, the person who knows that he has this faith can be assured that he is among the elect. The mere presence of faith, no matter how weak it may be, provided it is real faith, is a proof of salvation. As many as were ordained to eternal life, 
and they only believed. Acts 13 verse 48. Faith is a miracle of grace within those who have already been saved, a spiritual token that their salvation was finished on the cross and certified on the resurrection morn. The truly saved know that the love of God has been shed abroad in their hearts and that their sins have been forgiven. In Pilgrim's Progress we read that when Christian's sins were forgiven, a heavy burden rolled from his shoulders and that he experienced a great relief. Every converted man should know that he is among the elect, for the Holy Spirit renews only those who are chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son. It is folly to fancy that a sincere lover of Jesus Christ who trusts in him as his Savior and lovingly obeys him as his Lord can possibly lack the election of God. It is only because he is one of God's elect that he can believe in Christ for the salvation of his soul and follow after Christ in the conduct of his life. It is impossible that a believer in Christ should not be elected of God because it is only by the election of God that one becomes a believer in Christ. We need not, we must not, seek elsewhere for the proof of our election. If we believe Christ and obey Him, we are His elect children. Every person who loves God and has a true desire for salvation in Christ is among the elect, for the non-elect never have this love or this desire. Instead, they love evil and hate righteousness in accordance with their sinful natures. Does a man do his duty to God and his neighbor? Is he honest, just, charitable, pure? If he is, and if he is conscious of the power to continue so, so far as he can depend on this consciousness, so far as he may reasonably believe himself to be predestinated to future happiness. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not abideth in death. 1 John 3 verse 14 He that is begotten of God doeth no sin, because his seed abideth in him and he cannot sin, because he is begotten of God. 1 John 3, verse 9 That is, it is against his inner principles to commit sin. When he thinks deeply and soberly about it, sin is repulsive to him, and he hates it. Just as a good American citizen does nothing which will be detrimental to his country, so the true believer does nothing which injures the kingdom of God. As a matter of practice, no one in this world lives a perfectly sinless life, yet this is the ideal standard which he seeks to reach. Says Dr. Warfield, Peter exhorts us, 2 Peter 1.10, to make our calling and election sure, precisely by diligence and good works. He does not mean that by good works we may secure from God a decree of election in our behalf. He means that by expanding the germ of spiritual life, which we have received from God into its full efflorescence, by working out our salvation, of course not without Christ, but in Christ, we can make ourselves sure that we have already received the election to which we may claim. Good works become thus the mark and test of election, and when taken in the comprehensive sense in which Peter is here thinking of them, they are the only marks and test of election. We can never know that we are elected of God to eternal life 
except by manifesting in our lives the fruits of election, faith and virtue, knowledge and temperance, patience and godliness, love of the brethren. It is idle to seek assurance of election outside of holiness of life. Precisely what God chose his people to before the foundation of the world was that they should be holy. Holiness, because it is the necessary product, is therefore the sure sign of election. As Top Lady says, a person who is at all conversant with the spiritual life knows as certainly whether he indeed enjoys the light of God's countenance or whether he walks in darkness, as a traveler knows whether he travels in sunshine or in rain. How may I know that I am among the elect? One may as well ask, how do I know that I am a loyal American citizen? Or how shall I distinguish between white and black, or between sweet and bitter? Everyone knows instinctively what his attitude is toward his country, and the scriptures and conscience give as clear evidence of whether or not we are among God's people as white and black do of their color, or sweet and bitter do of their taste. Every person who is already a child of God should be fully conscious of the fact. Paul exhorted the Corinthians, Try your own selves, whether ye are of the faith, prove your own selves. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 2. Scripture Teaching we have the assurance that the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8.16 He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in him. 1 John 5.10 And the witness is this, that God gave unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath the life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not the life. These things have I written unto you, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, even unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. 1 John 5, verse 11 to 13. The born-again Christian welcomes the gospel in his heart, but the unregenerate push it off. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth us not. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 1 John 4, verse 6. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he gave us. 1 John 3, verse 24. Because ye are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6. The regenerated person instinctively recognizes God as his Father. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3, verse 14. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 1 John 5, 1. This means all who confess him as Lord. What blessed assurance! Ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. 1 John 2, verse 29. Those who hear and welcome the gospel are actuated by this inner saving principle. He that believeth on the Son hath eternal life, but he that obeyeth not the Son hath not life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 3.36 No man speaking in the Spirit of God saith, Jesus is anathema. And no man can say, Jesus is Lord, but in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3 
By this we are taught that a truly saved person cannot cast off Jesus and revile him, and that anyone who looks to Jesus as the Lord and his Lord has been regenerated and is among the elect. This, then, is a proof of his salvation. Each person knows what his attitude towards Jesus is, and knowing this, he is able to judge whether or not he is saved. Let each one ask himself this question, What is my attitude toward Christ? Would I be glad for him to appear and talk personally to me at this moment? Would I welcome him as my friend, or would I shrink from meeting him? Those who look forward with joy to the coming of Christ may know that they are saved. Since these certain marks of salvation are laid down in Scripture, a person by honestly examining himself may know whether or not he is among God's people. And by the same rule he may with caution judge of others, for if we see the external fruits of election in them and are convinced of their sincerity, we may reasonably conclude that they are elect. Paul had assurance concerning the Christians at Thessalonica, for he wrote, Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, your election, how that our gospel came not to you in words only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4 and 5. He also knew that God had chosen the Ephesians in Christ, for he wrote to them, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love, having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. 3. Conclusion But on the other hand, we should not pronounce any living person to be non-elect, no matter how sinful he may be at present. For even the vilest person may, so far as we know, yet be brought to faith and repentance by the Holy Spirit. The conversion of many of the elect is still future. Hence, no one has a right to declare positively that he or any other person is among the non-elect, for he does not know what God may have in store for him or them. We can, however, say that those who die impenitent are certainly lost, for the scriptures are explicit on that. We cannot say that every true Christian has this assurance, for it can only properly arise from a knowledge of one's own moral resources and strength, and the one who underestimates himself may innocently be without it. The Christian may at times become very discouraged because of weak faith, but this does not prove him to be among the non-elect. When faith is strengthened and erroneous views of salvation are cleared up, it is the privilege and duty of every Christian to know himself saved and to escape that fear of apostasy which must constantly haunt every consistent Arminian so long as he continues in this life. Hence, while assurance is desirable and easily obtainable for anyone who has made some progress in the Christian way, it cannot always be made the test of a true Christian. Through the scriptures God repeatedly gives us the promises that those who come to him in Christ shall in no wise be cast out, that whosoever will may take of the water of life without money and without price, and that he who asks shall receive. The grounds for our assurance then are both within us and without us. 
If therefore any true believer lacks the assurance that he is forever safe among God's people, the fault is in himself and not in the plan of salvation or in the scriptures. Chapter 25, page 313 Predestination in the Physical World 1. The Uniformity of Natural Law 2. Comments by Noted Scientists and Theologians 3. The Calvinistic System Alone Harmonizes with Modern Science and Philosophy 1. The Uniformity of Natural Law As far as the material universe apart from mind is concerned, we have no trouble at all to believe in absolute predestination. The course of events which would follow was, in a very strict sense, immutably predetermined when God created the world and implanted the natural laws of gravity, light, magnetism, chemical affinity, electrophenomena, etc. Apart from the interference of mind or miracle, the course of nature is uniform and predictable. This has not only been admitted, but dogmatically held and asserted by many of the greatest scientists. The atoms follow their exactly prescribed courses. The material objects we handle are governed by fixed laws. If we have accurate knowledge of all the factors involved, we can determine exactly what will be the effect of a falling stone, an explosion, or an earthquake. The telescope reveals to us millions of distant, fiery suns, each of which follows an exact predetermined course, and their positions can be predicted for thousands of years to come. Within the solar system, the planets and satellites swing perfectly in their orbits, and eclipses can be predicted with exactness. Before the eclipse of the sun in 1924, the astronomers announced the course which the shadow of the moon would take across the earth, and calculated the time for certain cities down to the seconds which calculation was later shown by the eclipse to be in error for only four seconds. Astronomers tell us that the same principles which govern in our solar system are also found in the millions of stars which are trillions of miles away. Physicists analyze the light which comes from the sun and from the stars and tell us that not only are the same elements such as iron, carbon, oxygen, etc., which are found on the earth also found on them, but that these elements are found in practically the same proportion there as here. From the law of gravitation we learn that every material object in the universe attracts every other material object with a force which is directly proportional to their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between their centers. Hence every grain of sand in the desert or on the seashore is linked up with every sun in the universe. The sluggish earth mounts upwards to meet the falling snowflake. The microscope reveals marvels just as wonderful as those revealed by the telescope. God's providence extends to the atoms as well as to the stars, and each one exerts its particular influence, small but exact. Everywhere there is perfect order, and God has slighted his work nowhere. 2. Comments by Noted Scientists and Theologians Huxley once said that if a man had possessed exact knowledge of natural laws before the rise of plants and animals on the earth, he could have predicted not only the geographical contour and climate of a given region, 
but also the exact flora and fauna which would have been found there, arising, as he supposed, through the spontaneous generation of life from non-living matter. And while we do not accept his extreme statement about the origin of life, this nevertheless gives us some idea of the uniformity of that great scientist expects to find in the laws of nature. The writer was once in the discussion group conducted by Dr. H. N. Russell, head of the Department of Astrology in Princeton University, and one of the outstanding astronomers of our time, in which Dr. Russell declared that apart from the influence of mind in the world, he believed in an absolute predestination made effective through the fixed laws of nature. The uniformity of the laws of nature, says Dr. Charles Hodge, is a constant revelation of the immutability of God. They are now what they were at the beginning of time, and they are the same in every part of the universe. No less stable are the laws which regulate the operations of the reason and conscience. And again, he says, as in all these lower departments of his work, God acts according to a preconceived plan. It is not to be supposed that in the higher sphere of his operations, which concern the destiny of men, everything would be left to chance and allowed to take its undetermined course to an undetermined end. We accordingly find that the scriptures distinctly assert in reference to the dispensations of grace not only that God sees the end from the beginning, but that he works all things according to the counsel of his will or according to his eternal purpose. Dr. Abraham Kuyper, who was admittedly one of the outstanding theologians of the last century, tells us, it is a fact that the more thorough development of science in our age has almost unanimously decided in favor of Calvinism with regard to the antithesis between the unity and stability of God's decree, which Calvinism professes, and the superficiality and looseness which the Arminian preferred. The systems of the great philosophers are almost to one in favor of unity and stability. He goes on to say that these systems clearly demonstrate that the development of science in our age presupposes a cosmos which does not fall a prey to the freaks of chance, but exists and develops from one principle according to a firm order, aiming at one fixed plan. This is a claim which is, as it clearly appears, diametrically opposed to Arminianism and in complete harmony with Calvinistic belief that there is one supreme will in God, the cause of all existing things, subjecting them to ordinances and directing them towards a pre-established plan. And again, he asks, what does the doctrine of foreordination mean except that the entire cosmos, instead of being a plaything of caprice and chance, obeys law and order, and that there exists a firm will which carries out its design, both in nature and in history? 3. The Calvinistic system alone harmonizes with modern science and philosophy. The Calvinistic world and life view, which so emphasizes the fixity and certainty of the course of events, is thus in striking harmony with modern science and philosophy. How prestigious is that claim which is sometimes made that no matter how clearly this doctrine of predestination is taught in the scripture, it is disproved by established truth from other sources. 
That claim is made by many who wish to establish a different system of theology. But anyone who is at all familiar with modern science and philosophy, with physiological psychology, for example, with their emphasis on universally fixed laws, known that just the opposite is true. Witness the present-day emphasis on behaviorism, determinism, and heredity. In what is Mendel's law but predestination in the realm of genetics? The tendency is strongly against the free and the contingent. The universe is conceived of as one systematic whole, interrelated in all its parts, and following a very definite prearranged course. With a different nomenclature and a different idea of the supernatural, the foremost modern scientists and philosophers hold a Calvinistic view in regard to the world as a unit. They may deny God's freedom or even his personality. In their necessitarian metaphysics may be radically at variance with the true doctrine of his providence and grace. They may attempt to explain the thought process of the brain and even life itself by physical and chemical laws, yet their impression of the co-ordained facts of life and nature are thoroughly Calvinistic. Without faith in the unity, stability, and order of things, such as that to which predestination leads us, it is impossible for science to go beyond mere conjectures. Science is based on faith in the organic interconnection or unity of the universe, a firm conviction that our entire lives must be under the sway of laws or principles established by some ultra-mundane power or creator. The more we learn about science, the more clearly do we see the unity which underlies it all. And when we come to study history, we find that it is a chain of events. Just as every grain of sand is related to every sun in the universe, so every event has its exact and necessary place in the unfolding of history. All of us remember comparatively insignificant events which have changed the courses of our lives, and had one of these links been omitted, the result would have been radically different. Oftentimes a very small thing sets off a course of events which convulses the world, as was the case in 1914 when a Serbian conspirator fired a shot at the Archduke of Austria, and the World War followed. Quite naturally, many people have drawn back from attributing all the free acts of men and angels, and especially their sinful acts, to the foreordination of God. Nevertheless, if God is to rule the world at all, his plan and providential control must extend to all events, not only in the natural world, but also in the realm of human affairs. And the scriptures plainly teach that the free acts of men and angels are certainly foreordained of God, as are the events of the material world. This fourfold argument of science, philosophy, history, and sacred scripture is not to be taken lightly. In science, philosophy, and history, the doctrine is reduced to the cold severity of impersonal force. But when the radiant light of the glorious gospel is thrown upon this, showing that the racial choices, the personal elections, the divine calls, are made by sovereign grace and not simply by sovereign will, we see that God's eternal purposes are in favor of man and not against him 
and the heart finds rest and comfort in the fact that God's love and mercy are as tender as his purposes are strong. Chapter 26, page 318 A Comparison with the Mohammedan Doctrine of Predestination 1. Elements which the two doctrines have in common 2. Mohammedan tendency toward fatalism 3. Christian doctrine not deferred from Mohammedanism. 4. The two doctrines contrasted. 1. Elements which the two doctrines have in common. While Mohammedanism is a false religion and utterly destitute of power to save the soul from sin, there are certain elements of truth in the system, and we are under obligation to honor truth regardless of the source from which it comes. The strength of Mohammedanism, says Froude, was that it taught the omnipotence and omnipresence of one eternal spirit, the maker and ruler of all things, by whose everlasting purpose all things were and whose will all things must obey. The striking similarity between the biblical and the Quranic doctrines of predestination have been noticed by many writers. Dr. Samuel M. Zwemer who in a very real sense can be referred to as the Apostle of the Mohammedan world, calls attention to the strange parallel between the Reformation in Europe under Calvin and that in Arabia under Mohammed. Says he, Islam is indeed in many respects the Calvinism of the Orient. It too was a call to knowledge, the sovereignty of God's will. There is no God but God. It too saw in nature and sought in revelation the majesty of God's presence and power and manifestations of his glory, transcendent and omnipotent. God, says Mohammed, there is no God but he, the living, the self-subsistent, slumber seizes him not, nor sleep. His throne embraces the heavens and the earth, and none can intercede with him save by his permission. He alone is exalted and great. It is this vital theistic principle that explains the victory of Islam over the weak, divided, and idolatrous Christendom of the Orient in the 6th century. The message of Mohammed when he first unfurled the green banner, There is no God but God. He is king, and you must and shall obey his will, was one of the simplest accounts ever offered of the nature of God in his relation to man. This was Islam as it was offered at the sword's point to people who had lost the power of understanding any other argument. In addition to the Quran, there are a number of orthodox traditions which claim to give Mohammed's teaching on the subject. Some of these tell in almost identical language how before the person is born an angel descends and writes his destiny. It is said that the angel inquires, O my Lord, miserable, or blessed, whereupon one or the other is written down, and, O my Lord, a male or a female, whereupon one or the other is written down. He also writes down the moral conduct of the new being, its career, its term of life, and its allotment of good. Then, it is said to him, roll up the leaves, for no addition shall be made thereto, nor anything taken therefrom. In another tradition we read of a messenger of God speaking thus, There is no one of you, there is no soul born whose place, whether paradise or hell, 
has not been predetermined by God and which has not been registered beforehand as either miserable or blessed. But while the Koran and the traditions teach a strict foreordination of moral conduct and future destiny, they also present a doctrine of human freedom which makes it necessary for us to qualify the sharper assertions of divine predestination in harmony with it. And here too, as in the scriptures, no attempt is made to explain how the apparently opposite truths of divine sovereignty and human freedom are to be reconciled. 2. Mohammedan Tendency Towards Fatalism As a matter of fact, however, Mohammedanism places such an emphasis on God as the sole cause of all events that second causes are practically excluded. The idea that man is in any way the cause of his own acts has nearly ceased to exist in fatalism, the normal belief of the Arabs, and their state of semi-civilization before Mohammed is the controlling force in the speculations and practices of the Muslim world. According to these traditions, says Dr. Zwemer, and the interpretation of them for more than ten centuries in the life of Muslims, this kind of predestination should be called fatalism and nothing else. For fatalism is the doctrine of an inevitable necessity and implies an omnipotent and arbitrary sovereign power. Practically, Mohammedism holds to a predestination of ends regardless of means. The contrast with the Christian system is seen in the following story. A ship crowded with Englishmen and Mohammedans were plowing through the waves. Accidentally, one of the passengers fell overboard. The Mohammedans looked after him with indifference, saying, If it is written in the book of destiny that he shall be saved, he shall be saved without us. And if it is written that he shall perish, we can do nothing. And with that they left him. But the Englishmen said, Perhaps it is written that we should save him. They threw him a rope, and he was saved. 3. Christian Doctrine Not Derived from Mohammedism but whatever may be said about the doctrine of predestination, no reasonable person can charge that the Christian doctrine is borrowed from the Mohammedan. Augustine, who is admitted by Protestants and Catholic alike to have been the outstanding man in the Christian church at his time, and whom Protestants rate as the greatest between Paul and Luther, has taught this doctrine with great conviction more than two centuries before Mohammedanism arose and it was aggressively taught by Christ and the apostles at the beginning of the Christian era, to say nothing of the place which it occupied in the Old Testament. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.